Hello and welcome to This is Capitalism, a collection of programmes about the economic framework which surrounds our every move. Have you ever stood at a cash machine and looked at your balance on the screen and wondered just what it is those figures represent? I'm sure everyone realises that there isn't somewhere in a bank vault a, a pile of banknotes with your name on them and every time you take some money out somebody goes in there and gets a couple of tenors. But actually the reality is quite startling and it has profound implications for who gets rich in the new age of capitalism and who doesn't. But it does take some getting your head around. Is it then the almost mind-blowing idea that the vast majority of money that we use every day in our economy is not created by anyone other than commercial or high street banks who magic it out of nothing? Correct. Correct. Steering me through the complicated, sometimes baffling world of magic money creation are Fran Boyt, the director of the campaign group Positive Money, and Sir Charles Bean, who's an economics professor, former chief economist and deputy governor for monetary policy at the Bank of England. The vast majority of money in modern economies is created by the banking system. Most listeners will probably think of money as the banknotes in their wallet. That's a very tiny fraction of what economists think of as money, which also includes deposits at banks, which can be turned into cash essentially on demand. And ahead of the financial crisis, the ratio of those sorts of easily withdrawable demand deposits to the money that is created by the Bank of England, which comprises notes and coin, and reserves that the banks themselves hold with the Bank of England, which they could therefore turn into cash easily, that ratio was about 25. So for, for every pound that was a pound coin, they'd have 25 pounds that were electronic pounds. Yeah, there were basically bank deposits, which, as far as people are concerned, they think of as being very like money, and they can use it for writing checks or direct debits. And it turns out that banks can create this money almost at will whenever they issue a loan. Their ability to do so is not constrained by the assets or reserves that the bank has. Actually, banks lend deposits that create money and they can go and look for the reserves later. So actually, they don't need to have reserves from the central bank before they lend money. Banks lend as much as they want and they look for reserves later. And Fran, do you, do you see any problem with this? Does this strike you as the best way of creating money in an economy like ours? Well, I think, you know, the global financial crisis is a, is a big indicator that the system isn't working well. The vast amount of new bank lending goes into mortgages and financial markets. So in the run-up to the crash, we had 40% of new loans going into real estate. And this was an increasing home ownership. This was actually people buying multiple homes, speculating on the property market and actually pushing house prices out of reach. Just 8% of new bank lending was actually going into what we call the real economy where most people live and work. So banks will be happy to create this money to help you buy an existing house. They'll be less happy to create this money to help you build a new house, if you like. Is that 
Exactly, yeah. We've got a situation in the UK where we've got five big banks which dominate the vast proportion, 85% of the market share. And actually, their business models aren't really interested in the more complicated loans towards small and medium-sized businesses or indeed building things. They're much more interested in lending to pre-existing assets, safer assets where they can have collateral against the loan. If, if you know, somebody defaults on their mortgage, the bank can have the rights on that house. Can I just interject there? Because I think it's important that listeners don't get the idea that lending for house purchase is a bad thing. Clearly, people, when they're young, they won't own their own home. They'll uh, want to buy a home when they grow older. And then when retirement looms, they'll want to trade down and so forth. So you need a financial system which allows the purchase and sale of assets to take place. So the problem is not that we have lending for property purchase. The problem is when that gets out of hand. And if you look at the history of financial crises, it's often lending against property getting out of hand or similar sorts of assets driven by speculation that their prices will rise. So huge amounts of money are conjured up out of nothing so that people can buy homes. But when too much money is created, it can ramp up property prices. But hang on, you might be thinking, doesn't all this rather fly in the face of that favourite phrase of particularly conservative politicians? But there isn't a magic money tree. Magic money tree. Magic money tree. Look, if this was me, they'd be saying this is a magic money tree. This is a magic money forest. How do we stop the banks creating far too much money? How, do you, how does the central bank, of which you were part of, Charlie, how does that control how much money these commercial or high street banks create? Essentially, the amount of loans that banks are willing to extend is driven by their appetite for risk and how much ability they have to withstand losses against the investments they've made. And when they're feeling very optimistic about the future, the sort of environment we had in the years leading up to the financial crisis, a lot of banks expected the good times would continue, they're more willing to extend loans. They don't think the loans will go bad. Then as far as the central bank is concerned, there's really two ways that you might influence the size of the banking system. One is through the bank's monetary policy decision. So in particular, by varying bank rate, which acts as a, a fulcrum for all other short-term interest rates in the economy, or through regulation. Now, what we found in 2009 is having pushed bank rate as low as we thought it was sensible and viable to go, we still needed to try and inject further demand into the economy. So if it wasn't possible to create more money by dropping interest rates further because they're already at rock bottom, what to do? Well, along with central banks all over the world, the Bank of England decided to cut out the intermediary and just create the money themselves. They used a process called quantitative easing or QE. To date, they've manufactured £435 billion this way. The Bank of England has embarked on a radical strategy to try to pull the UK out of recession. £75 billion of new money is to be pumped into the system. The bank's been on its own spending spree, buying financial assets, mainly government bonds, with money it's created at the touch of a button. 
It has had very negative side effects in terms of increasing wealth inequality. You know, we've seen stock markets continue to go up, up and up. But at the same time, increases in food bank use, etc. In, in the UK, one of the richest countries in the world. And the central bank could be using other tools. Something that Positive Money puts forward is something called QE for People. Well, we'll, we'll come back on that yeah. in a moment, if right. I may, Fran. I just want to bring Charlie in. So, so QE, quantitative easing, was a policy response. After the crash, they tried to reduce interest rates as low as possible. And they found they had kind of had no bullets left in the gun because they got them down to 0.25% eventually. Was that the only response at the time, do you think? It was effectively the only viable monetary response. The reason you can't keep on pushing short-term interest rates down is eventually you get to the point, if it's a negative interest rate, people say, oh, give me the cash instead. And we were very close to that. We were close to people saying, look, I'm not going to use the banking system anymore. Yeah, I'm going to put cash, cash under the mattress. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. And the banks themselves take the money out of the, their money out of the Bank of England and so forth. So you can't push the interest rate too low. But the impact of that, and even the Bank of England says this in its reports on it, the impact of that was to maintain high asset prices. Absolutely. Which, the, which, which benefited the people, clearly, who owned assets, not the people who didn't own assets. So the people with houses, and particularly those with multiple houses did very, very well out of QE, and, and everyone else didn't do well. And that was that, that's the, the point that Frank's yeah, making. That's it, it, the problem. Absolutely right that it has distributional consequences. It makes it, the rich richer. Uh, it makes people who have assets richer. Which so, tend to be richer. And, and actually, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, no, no, but, but the key thing about this is whether you're expecting to sell the asset or not. But people often think of it as though you've been given money. What's actually happening is that the rise in the price of assets is changing the valuation of those assets. Exactly. And and I'd say, you know, one of the fundamental problems with the UK economy is we are running it on asset price inflation. You know, a lot of the wealth is the middle class is held in property as well. And that can only be kind of continue for so long. And, you know, even the chief economist, Andy Haldane at the Bank of England says our biggest risk to financial stability is debt. It's household debt. It's private debt. And we can't keep relying on increases in, in asset prices to run this economy. We need to think about how we get money into the real economy where most people live and work. Let's make it absolutely clear that QE was a necessary response in the worst of the crisis. Without that, activity would have been weaker, unemployment higher. We only, say, have to compare uh, what's happened in the UK, say, with what's happened in the euro area, which was reluctant to engage in QE and the recovery was much slower than, say, in the UK or the United States, which engaged in quantitative easing promptly, to see that it had an effect. Whilst it's true that quantitative easing has pushed up asset prices in the UK, it is perhaps worth pointing out that, on official statistics, income inequality has marginally declined in the years since the financial crisis. But that's the system as it is. Is there any alternative to the way banks create money? Fran Boyt from Positive Money is campaigning for just such a change. What we would say is that the Bank of England is in a kind of like intellectual crisis. Central banking is in a crisis and we need to do things differently. We could be using the central bank, the Bank of England's power to create money, to direct money and demand into the real economy. And we could do that in a number of ways. Most straightforward is that the Bank of England credits the government the amount of money and the 
government could then get it into the real economy either through people have suggested a citizen's dividend so everybody gets the same amount of money or through some kind of specific you know house building program or or whatever but i think initially we at least have to break this taboo of things are the way they are and that's the only way they can be your your organisation is part of an international movement called sovereign money what what does that mean what is sovereign money So sovereign money is a term coined by somebody called Joseph Huber, who's a a German economist. And it's around the idea that national currency is essentially a natural monopoly. And so we should think about bringing that into public control. So having the state as the sole issuer of a national currency, rather than allowing commercial banks to create almost all of the money we use, But the problem that reformers like Fran have is it's hard to get a political bandwagon rolling behind the rallying cry, let's end the ability of commercial banks to create money. Campaigners did try in June in Switzerland, a country with lots of banks and lots of referendums. They proposed a new system they called Volgeld, or full money. But only 26% of those who voted supported the idea. I mean, I think that's still quite impressive if you think about the ra- how radical the the system change is. And so I do think, you know, the Volgeld was led by incredibly passionate people that really see reforming the, the money system and handing that power to the, the Swiss National Bank as being a massive step forward. And that's why Positive Money UK isn't focused on sovereign money per se right now. We're focused on the conversations around monetary financing, around queue for people and digital cash, because we see with a system change, you need to actually have you know, stepping stones to get to the money and banking system that we think will better serve society. Thank you, Fran Boyt and Charlie Bean. I'll be back on Monday with the next edition of The New Age of Capitalism, where we'll be looking at high-speed financial trading. A few millionths of a second can make the difference between fortune and failure. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of This Is Capitalism. If you'd like more, then please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, tell your friends about us, or leave a review.